Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, it's the Wonky Show on the morning after the night before. We'll have a think about what happened in the general election. We'll consider the impact on higher education and we'll chat through the implications for the country. It's all coming up. You know, these seats are also very socially conservative, former Labour voting towns, but the people voting um, have found more of a natural home socially um, with the Conservative Party um, for similar reasons uh, that, that, that they voted leave in the 2016 referendum. So there seems to be a real dichotomy emerging and we don't know how the Troy party is going to Welcome to the Wonky Show, your weekly way into higher education policy, people and politics. I'm Jim Dickinson and I'm here to deck the halls with boughs of policy. As usual, we have a terrific selection box of guests. Uh, first up in Coventry, we have Diana Beach, Head of Government Affairs at the University of Warwick. Diana, your highlight of the night, please. I actually think it's got to be, uh, while I was waiting for the exit results to come out, the exit polls, I went to see Hamilton, the musical, and it was a good way <laughs> to switch off. <laughs> uh, and in London, we have Hetty Hill, Research Leader Britain Things. Hetty, your highlight of the night, please. Hi, Jim. Oh, I've got a much more boring general election related highlight um, and that is probably the fact that Joe Swinson who we were all quite excited to see a bit more of we thought there was going to be a real opportunity for the Lib Dems excited to see more of her obviously failing to keep her seat that was probably something that stood out to me the most over the course of the evening and in Kirkcaldy we have Wonky's associate editor David Kernahan DK what was your highlight of the night? My highlight of the night was seeing the exit poll realizing that it was not going to be an enjoyable night for a lot of people and deciding to turn in and go to bed and in Aberystwyth we have Wonky's editor-in-chief Mark Leach Mark your highlight of the night please hi Jim uh, well it had to be the room where it happened uh, the Wonky Christmas quiz last night um, as we all gathered to watch um, the exit poll we all got to see it on the big screen um, and um, there was mixed reaction <laughs> So yes, we start this week with the results of the general election. On social media, uh, there were f- loads of stories of uh, tightening races and youth quakes uh, until, you know, whilst the thing was on yesterday. Uh, and then that big exit poll hit up 10, as Mark says, and everything changed. So, so Mark, kick us off. Well, it's, it, it's one of those things where um, you kind of, you, all the data points in one direction. Um, you're told that the Conservatives are going to win a majority. Um, but the, the uncertainty of the political situation in the last few years makes you doubt everything you hear and read. Um, but then when the exit poll landed at 10 p.m. and it was such a large majority predicted for the Conservatives, which has mostly come, um, mostly been borne out through the night with just a few seats down on, on the exit poll, it had this sense, I had this kind of sense of kind of inevitability, like, well, this was always going to happen. And more than that, I think I think Boris is going to be prime minister probably for a long time. I think um, this is our new political reality. And I, I, I'm looking at my kind of social media feed; it's really divided um, in, in higher education. So no, it's a left-leaning sector, um, but it's also a Remain voting sector. And it feels like um, a lot of the people in the higher education community have kind of emotionally rerun the Brexit campaign, and it's kind of 
the final nail in the coffin for those who wanted to stop Brexit. It's the final nail in the coffin for the People's Vote campaign. And even though and, and not a great deal of enthusiasm for Jeremy Corbyn, and that clearly being a big reason for Labour's collapsing vote. And 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 despite the you know the, the polls bearing out um, some some kind of real cognitive dissonance. Uh, and it's just the, the the weird political times we've been living in. Hetty, so right at the start of the campaign, of course, lots of commentators were saying this was the most predict- unpredictable election ever. And but, but it appears to have turned out to be one of the most predictable elections ever. I think it's an interesting point. And seven pollsters were within 2% on all the parties. So the polls were right. Um, I think they were fair to say that it was an unpredictable election. And um, we've seen this trend of voting volatility with voters becoming less loyal to particular parties. So 49% of voters we know didn't vote for the same party in 2010, 2015 and 2017. And I think particularly with this election, the importance of Brexit as a national issue and how much people felt that was playing a part in in their votes and how they were voting made it quite difficult to call. But it does appear to have been a Brexit election, um, just seeing, seeing the... Um, seeing everything that's happened since yesterday. And Diana, if there has been a youth quake, it appears to have been a youth quake in, in, in university towns and cities, but, uh, you know, so quite a concentrated youth quake. Yeah, I'm not sure there was a youth quake at all. I think we saw the best of that in the last election in uh, 2017. Um, as you say, the, the, the Labour seats that managed to hold on were in universities, towns and cities, but if you have a look at the majority, it's reduced considerably. Um, I think what we're seeing now is never mind a, a blue tide, it's a blue ocean. And, 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 Mark, and reduced turnout <laughs> as, Mark as well. Said, I mean, it's up to us and university communities to try and bridge that gulf and see how far we can swim across it. Yeah, because was it you that wrote earlier in the week about this thing where, you know, one of the things we've got to bear in mind is that, you know, the problem, that there are almost no MPs now who have a university in their constituency. Absolutely. And also, what my, one, of my, one of my big concerns was the expertise that we're losing from the House. With all these new MPs that are coming in, we've also lost a lot. And these are the MPs that have seen us through the past decade of debates over the Higher Education and Research Act, tuition fees, student number caps. All that institutional memory will be lost. We really are starting again. DK, you all have been looking at the data. What were some of the interesting kind of stories of the night from a kind of hot take point of view? Well, uh, you might have spotted that earlier in the week, just before the election, I posted a piece on wonky uh, 13 seats that were worth keeping an eye on. Um, I'm presuming you did then keep an eye on them. (laughs) I did keep a certain amount of an eye on them, yes. So uh, there were some interesting things. Um, I was quite taken with the increase in the Labour vote in uh, Putney. There's uh, 10,000 students there at the University of Roehampton. This is formerly, of course, uh, Justine uh, Greening's seat. Um, So as recently as like 2015, it was a really safe Conservative seat. But it is now held by Labour. The MP is Fleur Anderson. So I thought that was particularly notable. Um, it's obviously um, a very, very Remainy seat as well. So that's obviously going to have an impact. Uh, Newcastle under Lyme. Uh, that turned Conservative uh, the first time it was not a Labour seat since 1922 in the days of uh, Josiah uh, Wedgwood. A uh, little bit of a little bit of a disappointment. Um, it was a hugely marginal seat last time round. Uh, that's obviously uh, a Keele University is a, um, a big factor in that otherwise rather rural seat in the in the potteries. Uh, so that was a big big swing to the Conservatives. It went from thirty votes in it 
to uh, the Conservatives getting uh, 52% of the vote. So that was a bit of a strange one. Uh, lots of people were talking about Southampton itching. Um, this was narrowly held by the Conservatives, despite the fact all of the polling suggested it would probably stay Conservative. There was a big narrative built around the 8,000 students in Southampton Solent University. Um, and that didn't really c- come off again more than uh, 50% of the Conservative uh, vote. I think it's also really interesting to me that the character of particularly the Conservative Party is going to change quite dramatically because it's picked up a load of seats that were have long been Labour um, and vote um, and, and a lot of a lot of um, working class towns, um, um, a lot of deprived voters. I uh, saw some interesting data on Sky News this morning. Um, measure of deprivation pushing um, um, voters to uh, with a greater swing to Tory than to Labour. So. Um, but redrawing kind of the political map of Britain, not just in the in seats wise, but also kind of the, the kind of character of, of the of the governing of the governing party, and we don't know what that means for policy, because on on the one hand, we've had positive noises about things like international students and post study work visa visas and, and those things in the, in the last few months, and and Boris Johnson saying this morning he's going to kind of govern as a one nation prime minister, but on the other hand, you know these seats are also very socially conservative, former Labour voting towns. But the people voting um, have found more of a natural home socially um, with the Conservative Party um, for similar reasons uh, that they voted leave in the 2016 referendum. So there seems to be a real dichotomy emerging and we don't know how the Tory party is going to kind of wade through that and, and what the kind of what the outcome might be. Because, for example, one thing, you know, immigration, um, um, they, they could decide, well, actually, uh, you know, our base, that is the, the thing they are most concerned about, born out through Brexit, born out through this election. And it's one of the reasons why they abandoned the Labour Party. So actually, all that kind of work that's been done over the last few months and few years, reversing kind of the Theresa May position on this, might end up actually being untenable for, for this newly reformed governing party. Hetty, obviously, you said, you know, to some extent, this was a Brexit election. It was certainly styled like that by some of the parties. That, that sort of remain, uh, uh, and pro-Brexit split. Is, is that hardening into a wider set of kind of shared values on two sides or is it, or is this, a, a, you know, a temporal thing? I think it's quite hard to say at the moment. I'll sit on the fence on that one. Um, <laughs> um, but I think this did feel like a Brexit election. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens over the coming years. As you said, how the Tories choose to position themselves, bearing in mind they have won a different set of seats who have swung from Labour to the Conservative Party. I think it's also worth remembering that one thing that's stood out to us time and time again across focus groups that we've been conducting over the last weeks is that for many people, the election has represented a choice between two very unattractive options. Many have been really quite tormented about the choice ahead of them in the lead up to the election. So some people have voted a certain way for the first time in their lives because of Brexit, because of issues that they feel are affecting their local area. Um, so that's something that's been quite unique to this general election, I think. Uh, and Diana, the, the, the defectors had a bad night, didn't they? And you know, you've obviously worked closely with uh, Sam Jima, but uh, they all did quite badly, the, the, the defectors or the wall, or, 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 you know, some would argue the ones that have been thrown out of uh, the party. Yeah, I mean, the one that obviously comes to my mind is Sam Jima. Um, he is going to be a big loss to the house. Um, I can say that. I had the privilege of working with him for a few months. I saw his personal journey and I think we'll go a long way to find another principal politician. Um, so I'm sorry that Brexit has caused those casualties. And then looking at uh, sort of further afield, um, we can look to Gordon Marsden in Blackpool. Um, 
long-time shadow higher education minister. More institutional memory that's gone. Um, yeah, it's done a lot of damage. Now, every week we're delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. In the 2017 Conservative Manifesto, there was an interesting development whereby we saw uh, the proposal for uh, new um, institutes of technology. Uh, and these, uh, described in the proposal back then, were to have regis professors and uh, have degree awarding powers and to, and to be very grand places. I'm not sure that we've quite got to that stage with the Institutes of Technology yet. But they look rather similar to another proposal from a Conservative government, uh, but in this case, 50 years earlier. The College's Advanced Technology were a way of pulling out from the succession of regional uh, colleges of technology um, a group that would be advanced and would do higher level work. And so David Eccles, uh, who was the education minister, presents a, a white paper on technical education in 1956, which says that all of the work in technical education, or a bulk of it, should be concentrated in a small number of colleges. The rationale was so that they built up sufficient critical mass uh, and that students would, would need to go to them. And if the technical colleges would each have a, a specialisation that they could work to uh, and that people would you know, coalesce around them. So all pretty similar to where we are now in terms of the development of the Institute of Technology technology and these are very f familiar places so the white paper sets out the kinds of places that might become them and so the Acton Technical College becomes the Brunel College of Advanced Technology which becomes Brunel University and so we go through this process of, of seeing how those places develop. Now some of them who were on the original list in the white paper don't get to be colleges of advanced technology so that um, the Leicester College of Technology and Commerce doesn't come through, it doesn't get to be a cat uh, but of course it eventually becomes Democratic University so those developments happen over time uh, and we we see that now obviously this gives some of those universities a, a head start these are universities that have chancellors and uh, they have charters and they, they've had uh, they have got 25 years of UGC funding rather than the other places that they had um, but sometimes this didn't work out for them at all so one of the places that actually became a college of advanced technology Chelsea um, uh, Although it was destined to move to St Albans, it never did. Um, it, it fell through in its negotiations and then merged with King's College and, and all traces of it have effectively vanished. Um, obviously, graduates of it won't appreciate that, but effectively it, it, it's vanished. It's one of those places that have now closed. So the cats themselves developed some very important things which actually become features of the rest of the sector. Firstly, they weren't given their own degree awarding powers. They had to work for a Council for Technological Awards, which set a new form of qualification that they would all have, the Diploma of Technology. This was to be a degree standard and with the same official standing, but it would have a, a kind of pattern that they would all adhere to. The key thing was that it would have a sandwich approach. Every student would go out and do a work placement that was a mandatory part of the course. But it also had other distinctive features such as a liberal studies program. So all the students had to do humanities and other studies alongside it. So those things uh, set off in their way. Um, and clearly, these are the challenger institutions of their time. Picked by government to advance a technological mission, um, they, they continue uh, to develop that work. What happens to them, of course, is that by the time Robbins comes along, Robbins decides they should all become technological universities, or he says they might become faculties of technological universities next door, uh, because quite often they're in the same city. So there's then a process whereby they become universities, and some of them go through a further transformation at that point. So uh, that what had been at Borough, um, 
uh, moves out uh, and becomes uh, the uh, University of Surrey and what had been in Bristol the Virtual Adventurers College moves out to Bath and becomes the University of Bath but they become technical, technological universities uh, and they proceed happily in a different direction although they've all now quietly dropped the technological university tag um, but that's that's where they all come from that, that early boost of we shall have colleges of advanced technology um, but they've all become wonderful and fine universities and look out over Christmas history fans because we'll be posting up a hidden history box set for you to binge on over your mince pies now next up then a conservative win with a sizable majority will doubtless have implications for the higher education sector uh, the manifesto promised all sorts of things uh, action on free speech grade inflation and in a response to the auger review at some point so Diana how much of that will be in the Queen's speech Oh, it's like a bag of Christmas presents, isn't it? <laughs> um, well, you know, the manifesto, I suppose, was quite policy light. Lots of big ideas, but not much substance. So I think now, with such a considerable majority for the Tories, they really can pick and choose what issues they want to take forward. Um, that said, I wouldn't um, assume the status quo. I know we've got the same party in, but the same party with a lot more clout. Um, so I think, as I said, they're going to be picky on what they choose. I, I'm not going to guess what issues are going to make it forward. I wouldn't rule out the auger review, fees and funding. Um, and I certainly wouldn't rule out extra investment in science and investment. I mean, that was something. Science and investment? Sorry. I certainly wouldn't rule out extra investment in science and research. Um, that was something that was mentioned by all three parties, three three main parties in the manifesto. And um, I know there is a will within the party to deliver on that. Mark, obviously, one of the uh, arguments is that, uh, you know, lots of the sort of socially liberal Tories have gone much more ideological uh, side of the house. You know, do, does this signal, uh, you know, lots of sabre rattling on free speech or will that just sort of go away? Well, it could. And partly because of the reasons Diana says, it's a lack of institutional memory. It's a lack of um, university universities in in Tory seats um, which leads to that you know which leads to that um, kind of ignorance about what happens on on campus really um, and to you know that the the, the the idea that universities are kind of alien places full of kind of Ramonas and um, you know kind of the big remain complex needs um, you know needs unpicking um, but I, th- I think that uh, one thing we do know is that they're not going to do a major reshuffle before Brexit. So the next kind of couple of months are all going to be about getting Brexit done, as the slogan says. Um, and then, as Diana says, you know, I wouldn't rule out seeing um, conversations about auger reappear. Gavin Williamson promised promised the government's response to that by the end of winter which leaves us plenty of time to play with. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me at all to see that in the new year. Obviously, big questions about whether uh, that is a, a set of issues that this government is going to really want to pick up and run with. Um, but I, I, I would be, full, be foolhardy, I think, to predict um, that the auger agenda is dead, particularly because the work done, I think, in the last parliament um, to slow and stop and, and disrupt the moves to cut tuition fees probably don't hold as much water with the new newly made up um, Tory party. And de- depending on when they shuffle the teams around and bring potentially new ministers in with their own ideas, um, it wouldn't wholly surprise me to see um, Gavin Williamson with kind of renewed vigour uh, and a kind of reforming education agenda, uh, plenty of which will touch HE and, and, and wouldn't necessarily rule out the the stuff around fees. Um, much more likely, obviously, the the stuff around FE uh, and and skills more widely. But I I think I think I can see I can see a path where that set of policies comes together with those other things you mentioned during the manifesto: value for money, grade inflation. You know, these are now bread and butter Tory HE issues. Um, graduate outcomes. You know, 
link, you know, some, something that links, links all those agendas together could be ideologically satisfying, you know, and if you've got the time, the bandwidth, um, and the reforming zeal in the department, uh, yeah, stranger things have happened. So, DK, given the character of this uh, parliament and the, and the character in particular of uh, the, the kind of Tory MPs that, uh, that we now have, what should higher education be worried about? Well, the big thing uh, coming down uh, the road, as everybody else has said as well, is Brexit. Um, the, uh, the, every single candidate apparently was signed up to Boris Johnson's deal before the uh, election started, so it is very likely, and we're expecting this to happen straight after the Queen's speech before any reshuffle, uh, that the Brexit deal will be passed by the House of Commons um, in December, and then we move into a year or possibly six months of uh, uh, panicked uh, trade negotiations. Um, I think the sector uh, needs to be very clear that it wants to its priorities kept on the table. The sector obviously is keen on participation in European research projects and European research initiatives. And it is not just the money. It is the chance to uh, collaborate at scale. Um, uh, so I know a lot of people will be complaining about that. It's also the interest, the interests of staff and students who uh, are citizens of EU countries that are living and working and studying in the UK, that uh, that is something that is possible if the trade talks break down and it looks more like no deal again, that we will uh, see those rights uh, kind of wither away. So I think uh, I think universities need to be really careful to watch that. Hattie, if I said to you, what is it that Britain thinks about universities? You know, the people that go there, the money that's spent on them. You know, do, 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 do the general public think much about universities if they don't have sort of, you know, skin in the game in, in terms of, you know, graduates in the family or sons and daughters applying? Mm. I think there's something quite interesting around people feeling quite distant from universities based in their local area. Um, so, I mean, anecdotally, we saw this in some research that we carried out for Universities UK. We had um, workshops actually held in universities. And for many, it was the first time that they stepped foot inside the university building, which is really interesting. Um, and in, in a survey that we carried out this year, 40% felt that they're not informed to any extent about the impact of universities on their local community, which is quite striking. That then coupled with quite a negative media and political discourse does create quite a challenging environment when people are talking about hearing um, you know, about high fees, about uh, vice-chancellor's pay, freedom of speech in the media. That can embed perceptions that universities are a little bit out of touch and that's sometimes something that we hear. Okay, well one of the things we haven't mentioned in our sort of brief overview of policies is the Civic University Pledge which was in the Tory manifesto and I think this could be coming back with a re renewed vigour um, in the new year, especially as we've just said that a lot of the new Tory votes have come from more working class areas, those left behind areas, the ones that would have voted leave. And the Tories are going to have to do something that will make sure that they can deliver on these people's vote. Um, and I think that will get universities looking a little bit more on what they do outside their own cities, outside their own communities, and basically for these left behind areas of the country. Now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's Associate Editor, David Kernahan. Okay, so this week's question... Um, I'm looking at the percentage point swing to the Conservatives in seats that are now held by the Conservatives against the polar young participation rate. So this is the number, the percentage of 18-year-olds that are likely to go to university against 
the swing towards the Conservatives in the seats where we now have a Conservative MP. Does it correlate? So yeah, this I think I think my hunch is it supports my earlier point. Uh, seeing some of the data being broadcast the last twenty four hours, that uh, lower quintile um, in polar possibly more likely to swing further to the Tories, counterintuitively, but that as being the big realignment um, that's happened in selection. So I'd say it does correlate. I think. And the answer is yes, it does correlate. There is um, a moderate negative correlation. R squared is 0.50. We've seen this as a trend for quite a long time, that seats with um, a lower polar young participation rate are more likely to have uh, voted leave. And I think the, the link between the leave vote and a low young participation rate is what we're seeing here. But it's still, it's quite a startling uh, um plot and I've included kind of various options so you can look at other things other parties and whether or not the seats were gained or held and where the data doesn't exist as in for instance the constituency at St Ives which at the time of recording hadn't declared yet I've not plotted it And finally, we thought we ought to spend a bit of time thinking about the wider implications on the country, its politics, and what all that might mean for the way HE's thought about at large. So Hetty, kick us off. So I thought it'd be helpful to start off with a bit of a look at the mood of the nation and how people are feeling more generally. Um, And based on research that we conducted earlier this year, I think there are two things that start out that are hopefully a helpful jumping off point. Um, The first is that the, the national mood is quite bleak. It's quite a gloomy picture. The public are unsurprisingly quite uncertain about the future of the country and feel quite negative. Um, And, you know, when we ask them to think of words to describe how they feel, they talk about feeling confused, worried, angry and divided. Um, So whilst that's the national picture, the good news is, is that people tend to feel a bit more optimistic about their local area and their personal lives. So 61% um, in a recent survey said that they felt optimistic about their local area. And this is where I think there are implications for universities and the higher education sector more broadly, because it really gives an opportunity um, for them to have a more positive impact and drive positivity when people think about their local area. It's quite interesting that there are some things in particular people people feel more um, optimistic and pessimistic about it when thinking about their local area, which I think there are some real um, implications for universities. Um, so there are concerns about housing, about decline of the high street and crime. and But there are also opportunities in terms of having that sense of community, creating high quality spaces, which do tend to contribute to a sense of pride and positivity. And universities can have a really key role there. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I, I, I think this stuff is fascinating. And, and, you know, you know, back on some of that civic stuff, Mark, I, I, I do think it was extraordinary that if you think about one of the kind of leading lights in the civic agenda is Lincoln. And, and, and that went from Labour to Conservative overnight, which was one of the kind of, you know, outliers in, in the university town, uh, you know, kind of panoply. This speaks to me of kind of the issues that weren't talked about in the election when it, when it comes to when it comes to higher education and, and particularly when you kind of universities relationship with, with their local areas. So the civic stuff was in the Troy Manifesto, um, which I think, you know, welcome on, on many levels. Um, but there's a, there's a, there's a massive unanswered question, which is, um, do we want um, everyone to go to university? Um, what are we going to do when um, the demographics massively bounce back uh, and we've got hundreds of thousands more 18-year-olds than we do at the moment um, and, and nowhere close to the stock of student, uh, student accommodation to, to supply them all? Um, are we going to say, well, you know, university, uh, universities involve kind of basically going to your local, uh, for most people, going down to your local uh, institution rather than traveling away um, for, an, for an elite education um, which will become 
that much more scarce um, and that much more expensive, possibly. Um, uh, in which case, you know, what the, the, the character of the, I guess, the kind of the, the, the university and town relationship could really change because um, we don't know whether, so if it's, it's like I said at the start, I think Boris will be Prime Minister for probably quite a long time, but we may be two cycles, two election cycles away from the government substantially changing. In that time, the demographics are going to, are going to boom absolutely. It's going to be, it's going to completely change the face of, uh, of the sector. All of a sudden, um, it's going to start looking like an elite, um, an elite system again, rather than a mass one with thousands, hundreds of thousands of students not being able to, to get a place. Now, this government is going to have to decide whether it wants to invest in expanding the sector that we do have to meet those needs or really sort out the other education skills pathways um, f- f- for those people who are going to want to do something. At the moment, going to university, uh, particularly the full-time undergraduate experience, still carries so much cachet and cultural capital um, and matters, uh, uh, and is kind of the expectation of so many people. Um, how are they going to either manage those expectations um, or, as I say, drive kind of the investment in the sector that would need to happen to be able to meet um, to, to, to meet the demand that's going to come over the course of potentially this, this government and this, and this prime minister. Uh, and then within that, we could be facing a very different, um, a very different environment when it comes to students, um, and their local towns. Um, I, 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 I personally feel that we'll just see, um, far more staying at home because the, the cost is going to be so high. So DK, if it's a divided country, you know, certainly one of the things I found interesting this morning in my social feed, which is you know, very much a filter bubble, is lots of people are kind of very angry with the rest of the country, and I'm not sure that's healthy. It's not really healthy to be angry with anyone. I mean, uh, democracy has happened, people have uh, made their choices, and we can't really uh, uh, we can't really blame them. We can look at the ways in which each party was attractive or not to each particular uh, demographic or type of voter in type of seat. I know that um, Labour is taking a long look at itself and there is a concern that some people think the Labour manifesto has been too left-wing this time around. That's put people off from all over the place. I mean, what you hear from people that have been campaigning for uh, Labour is that the problem has been Jeremy Corbyn himself, who is hugely popular in certain limited circles, but is a bit of a turn-off in the rest of the place. Um, If you think about stuff like the percentage of people that uh, go to university and the close correlation of that with leave vote and a failure to vote uh, conservative. It is interesting the way the country is dividing along those lines and it is a particular worry that higher education seems to be a central nexus of that and in future I would be concerned that we would see a lot more uh, uh, populist university bashing, which may eventually play out in policy. So that's about it for this week and for 2019. Keep an ear out over Christmas because we'll be doing a couple of festive bingeable box sets of hidden history. Uh, to find out more about anything we've discussed today, you'll find links on the episode page at wonky.com where you can also leave your thoughts and comments. Don't forget you can subscribe to us automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on your favourite podcast directory or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you think you've got it takes to be a guest on the show in the new year do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch so thanks again to our guests mark dk diana and hetty to the crew from team wonky for making the show happen and of course to you for listening until next year stay wonky
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.